Welcome to the Ownership Economy Podcast. In episode 49, Martin and Jawhead sat down with Erin Grover, who formerly worked in international development in Afghanistan and India, and in investigative journalism, who transitioned into working in Web3 in 2016. Erin covers her work on the ground with suppliers as diverse as farmer cooperatives, textile cooperatives, and the governments she worked with to sponsor blockchain projects for traceability. She also covers many real-world examples to demonstrate how blockchains can bring accountability, transparency, and ultimately even higher revenues to stakeholders in multi-sided marketplaces. Thanks for joining us today, Erin. Thank you. So the way we like to start this basically is uh, we just like to get to learn a bit about you. We'd love to hear your story, you know, where did it start and tell us about, a little bit about your story arc, you know, how you ended up doing the this uh, blockchain stuff that we're all subsumed in. So start wherever you like. Okay. Well, um, I grew up in an activist family um, from Ireland, but in New York, and they were all about protecting the working class. They started... My uh, grandfather and his father started the Longshoremen's Union in the East Coast. Um, Yeah, so um, yeah, I was always an activist uh, because of the family and ended up um, spending my 20s working in international development between Afghanistan, working on elections in 2004 and 2005, doing like on-the-road journalism in Cambodia, following um, sex trafficking rings as a journalist, undercover kind of, um, and then uh, writing about deforestation um, in Southeast Asia, uh, spending time with tribes in the dwindling rainforest, and then uh, got to do elections one more time with the UN in East Timor, and wow. I found myself, yeah, that was interesting. Um, I found myself needing a break after 10 years of that, especially Afghanistan kind of burnt me out (laughs) with all the things that you have to worry about there. Um, So I took a break just focusing on filmmaking in Los Angeles. But um, after five years of doing that, I fell into blockchain and I was doing like basic wallet setup with uh, professional investors who were older and couldn't handle the tech. And it seems like it's not related, but for me it is because at that time, you know, I was just doing crypto on my own. And then when it wasn't as popular and people came to me, they're like, oh, you're that person on social media that's talking about this whole crypto blockchain thing. What is it? Are you rich? Can you help me buy some? (laughs) And that's how I fell into it. And um, my friend was like, "Um, you're just helping people set up wallets all the time. And why don't you start charging? Oh yeah, that's a good idea. So anyway, for me, yeah, yeah. (laughs) For me, when I really uh, clicked and fell in love with the technology was around that time and just really understanding how blockchain could be used for elections after Afghanistan. I mean, that would be an incredible tool because it's not only the transparency and the immutability, but I had to write um, election reports uh, about once a week for the UN 
so headquarters could understand what was going on. So I, mm. I know the ins and outs of like all the um, physical uh, bulk of elections, the boxes, the, the paperwork, um, like all the things to issue physical election materials and set up election centers mm -hmm. in a country with very little infrastructure. Imagine just being able to vote um, through blockchain, like yeah. on a mobile phone. Um, exactly. That would save a lot of that would save uh, a lot of money. That's a great spot to sort of before we get into all of the you know rest of the things that we get into on the show around ownership, natural capital assets, and what have you. Um, this is a great spot just to understand since you're so experienced in this across you know at least two different places you mentioned. Um, Afghanistan, I'm from there, 34 million roughly population, you know, elections is a was still a, a relatively new concept because you know there was monarchy, then there was the Soviet um, you know dictatorship slash domination. And then there was the Taliban. So I'm curious to hear, can you tell us a bit about, you know, taking a circuitous route to this tech, you know, what are the, what are the sorts of problems that you, as in your capacity at the UN observed, right? What, in, what were the various stakeholders, right? What you mentioned writing reports, what is it that folks really want to know about what's going on on the ground? And what did you kind of observe? So stakeholders, uh, and, and, you know, I posted international development for a decade. Um, so this goes beyond one example, but stakeholders want to know where their money's going and that it actually did something. And that's the exciting thing about blockchain for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, there's a great use case that was executed by at least one NGO. I know the UN did this, but um, mm -hmm. there's a refugee uh camp kind of center scenario in Jordan for Syrian refugees where the uh, donor funds were issued on blockchain for the refugees to pick up their food uh, from a center and they um, were you know ring funds to only purchase the necessities in this center and they used uh, bio data to unlock the funds for each person, it was a retina scan. Yeah, so uh, knowing where your funds go as a donor or a stakeholder, whether it's an election or uh, you know issuing food rations or what have you, that's really exciting. And honestly, um, I was at Davos in 2020 uh, talking to somebody who runs a significant family office out of Los Angeles. I just said, I love the work you do, Aaron, but like if you could actually get all this on blockchain with, you know, the kind of development work you're talking about abroad, like I could get my family office to issue so much more money because they just want to know where the money's going. Wow. And I can't blame them. Yeah. That's super cool. So then like, if we, yeah. if we zoom in a bit more too, on, um, you mentioned, you know, aid, that's awesome. We, we've had a few folks on the show also getting into that space. Um, this, uh, the space around elections, right? So I think you did mention the UN and Ryan reports. What are the real, you know, besides the impact, you know, investors and potentially like NGO donors, if the UN is having Aaron Grover go to Afghanistan and report on elections, what do they want to know, right? What is the actual problem and sort of use case that they have for, hey, tell us what's going on? 
what's happening on the ground, right? Are they like, is it, um, you know, election chicanery, fraud, like uh, out, out or turnout? Like, what is the, what is the sort of space of this design, right? Before we even get to blockchain solutions that people need to understand around elections in these places if they've never had experience in them. Yeah, so the headquarters wants to know about um, how many people were reached on a weekly basis as far as civic education, voter registration, which is all at the time, and I'm sure it still is, was done on um, paper, laminated cards. Imagine NFT voter registrations. Um, anyway, um, so yeah. Uh, logistics, what happened with logistics for the week, where things were issued. I mean, these are things that can be geotagged on blockchain too, FYI. Um, you know, the delivery of ballot boxes, how many ballot boxes, how many trainers are out there in the field. Um, yeah, I mean, seemingly boring information, but it paints the bigger picture. There's a lot of yeah. data there. Totally I will say- sense. Oh, go ahead, sorry. Uh, I did, at the UN, I was standing in an alley at the office and no one saw me. And I heard just around the corner, um, some people who, you know, I love and respect, but there's some issues with ballot boxes. And I heard this conversation of, oh shit, we don't really have the number of votes from that cluster of ballot boxes. Ooh. Ah, fuck. Like, let's, uh, what number do you think it is? Like, that's the conversation oh, that I heard. And like, you know, yeah, and, and oh, sometimes boy. it's not, Sometimes it's not cheating. It's just that it's, you know, it's a mess and you're working in this crazy place and something goes wrong. People are tired. They're working 24 seven counting centers, terrorist threats. Like, yeah. So ballot boxes and ballot papers, eh, it's kind of old school, you know? Right. And now (laughs) that you've given us a good picture of the data and metadata, right? Like it, it, was this around the time? Like, had you encountered this was early? I've imagined this is like 2004 or something, right? Maybe 2002. Yeah, yeah right. So, yeah. you know, with the first, of course, like the idea of blockchains with cryptography had existed, but no one had actually put, you know, Satoshi hadn't released the Bitcoin yet and white paper and what have you. So, you know, maybe you could tell us a bit there. You know, you went from Afghanistan, you continued this work in development, you worked as an investigative journalist by the sound of it as well. Um, what, what was your next experience that kind of took you from, you know, you saw they're doing paper ballots. Sometimes they're making up numbers, but it's not necessarily like it's a structural thing, right? It's not necessarily like bad actors all the time. Right. And so what was your next set of experiences that really made you question the institutions you were working with and in? Oh, well, you know, there's the other part, uh, and this is where DAOs could be really interesting. Uh, you know, there is one big, this happens all the time. There is one big NGO that decided to sink $80,000 into a, a podcast campaign where they bought or a bunch of um, iPods and put like messages of like public health and like delivered these uh, iPods to an Afghan village. When they got there, they realized that village doesn't have electricity. So how are you gonna recharge your iPod? Oh boy. And um, I mean, I'm sure that Afghanistan has more mobile access now. It still probably is not perfect, but there's gotta be 
a better way. There's got to be a way of like, why don't you give the local people an opportunity to make a choice in what they need help with, not mm. what some NGO thinks that they need. Yeah. Of course, like you're going to have to start talking about mesh networks in these cases where you're right. in these remote villages. But yeah, there's a gap. But I still think that, you know, there's way more mobile access now in Africa and Asia than when I was there like 20 years ago. Um, so yeah, like let people decide what they want instead of foreign organizations coming in and dictating what they think everybody needs. This is a this is a somewhat recurrent theme with the folks that we bring on who are have have experience with development. So I'm thinking of one of our early episodes with uh, Sean Conway of Ixo. Um, that's very much his experience. And then also uh, we had another one with Melon McKay, where who had done about. You know, and continues to do it. She's been about doing 10 years of experience in international development in Burma and, and other places. And it's a common theme, right? This idea that um, local actors, right, should be empowered to actually say, is that impact outcome something that we value? And if not, what is? And then how do we co-design that, right, with, you, with the folks who are putting money into these initiatives? And yeah. maybe that's a decent sort of dovetail to then say, you know, you're... You went. You had mentioned you went from um, in, in, uh, from international development work. You done. You did some investigative journalism, and then you around 2015. By the sound of it, you had you you encountered blockchain. So you know you have this wealth of experiences at this point. What were your first sort of considerations when you ran into this technology? We're like, oh, what you know? Because at this point, if you go online, right, there's the whole you know Bitcoin solves this, blockchain solves that meme, right? So like, what were your first sort of impressions when you ran into this and said, oh, okay, I I, I see some some possibilities here, right? What were those in your mind? Yeah, you know, I left the the um, NGO world after ten years and um, really felt uh, depleted and lost and. I was in LA, I was in the film world, which was fine for a little bit, but then I ran out of fuel for that um, because, because a lot of the stereotypes in Hollywood are true. Um, but yeah, I um, was really feeling lost because if I don't feel like I'm living for purpose, I have a hard time. And yeah, when I first really, when the blockchain first clicked for me the, and the potential, I was like, oh, this is it. This is it. And I felt like I found my purpose again. And, and what, I, what I really got was my mm, thoughts went back to that time in Afghanistan with the elections and some other NGOs that I worked with. And I was like, yeah, blockchain is going to solve these issues if applied. It won't completely solve the issues, but it is a powerful tool if used the right way. So I got really excited again. And I, yeah, I felt like I got back to my purpose and that's huge for me. Very cool. And then for you, what were some of the you know, purpose-driven initiatives that bubbled up for you at that time? I know you were helping some you know, folks, you're working in digital asset management, I believe at that time, and you'd, mm -hmm. uh, you were helping some folks set up wallets and, and what have you. But you know, this is for most, depending on who you ask in the Web3 space and this, you know, idea of building ownership, an ownership economy around natural assets and around you know, internalizing the externalities of the, the economy, 
these are all ideas that I think have really taken hold within the last two years, maybe, right, in Web3. Yeah. But the reality of it is that there you have been people thinking about and working on this way before ReFi became a thing, right? So in those yeah. early experiences, maybe you could walk us through one of those, right? You, you have your NGO experience and you're like, okay, my purpose is now sort of aligning with what I'm seeing in blockchain. Uh, maybe you could walk us through one of your earliest experiences with what people are now calling regenerative finance. Yeah, so uh, my friend Javier Levi was one of the first people in the world to have a use case of smallholder farmers using blockchain for transactions. This use case was out of Haiti. It's got that spark. Like, oh yeah, this is where it's at. I'm going to follow it closely and do my research. And I'm going to parlay out of pouring digital assets into this. But yeah, she set up a use case in Haiti that sent mangoes directly from Haiti to America. It was the first time in history that the mangoes didn't go through the Dominican Republic. And the farmers' pockets uh, oh, went up between 500 and 700. Aaron, 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 one sec. We can't quite start out with oh. Perfect. And uh, Aaron, maybe you could walk us through that the the use case of, uh, that you were just chatting about regarding Haiti. Okay, so my friend Javier Levi is one of the first pioneers in blockchain and produce supply chains. Had a use case out of Haiti where mango farmers were sending their produce straight to America through blockchain traceability, and it was the first time in history that the middlemen of the Dominican Republic were cut out. Wow. Uh, and that increased their profits uh, between five and 700%. So that, that was the magic aha moment for me. And then did I need to talk about India again or did you catch oh, that? Oh, oh, no, we, we didn't. But let's, uh, but let's, before we move on, like the, I'm really interested in both the Haiti and, you know, we'll talk about Sayadri as well, but the, the Haiti use case where you mentioned that they're getting something like five to 700% um, of the additional profits in the supply chain. Can you walk us a bit through how that works? Because I think that, you know, you've been in this space for a while. I've been in it since about the 2016 or so. And everyone, uh, <laughs> at this point, I'm sure there have been more than 10 companies who've claimed that they're doing something with supply chain and blockchain. So I'd love to hear more a bit, a bit more about how the the Haiti use case worked out. Like how, what were all the pieces? Who were the players? And what actually, what was built? And and how did it work? If you have the info, I do. Um, I'll send a link too. But Javier uh, had a grant from the World Bank to do this pilot, and pretty much what happens, it's very basic, but you can only do the produce transactions by scanning a QR code. And, you know, it's, there's uh, a mobile version, there's a desktop version too, um, different use cases, use one or the other typically, but um, yeah, you can't, you can't even make um, a financial transaction without the app and the QR code. So the middlemen are like instantly cut out because they're not going to have the app. It sounds so basic, but it makes a huge difference. And because of smart contracts, the cut of the farmer um, is a part of every transaction. So this, these are um, 
basically small holders or you know industrial farms that are growing mangoes and they're able to by virtue of interacting with this app and um basically putting their order flow into it they're able to transact more directly with the parties who are involved with uh purchasing mangoes from them is that basically a yeah it was just with smallholder farmers yep got you and so that's pretty fascinating. What ended up happening with that pilot? Was it considered a success? What were its kind of endpoints, right? Like how was it evaluated? It was it was considered a success. I mean, just based on, you know, the increase in profits. But unfortunately, the World Bank didn't want to fund it anymore and it stopped, which is really annoying. <laughs> but, you know, welcome to international development. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think then let's move from that to... um you know, I actually, before we jump into Sayadri, I'm super interested in this one as well, but uh, curious to hear since we are now, you know, Martin and I are collecting almost a, a little, you know, we have a little collection of folks who are coming into the space from refi. I would love to know, you know, before we continue, uh, can you tell us in your own words what you think regenerative finance is and how you think about it? Okay, well, I think that uh Regenerative finance is using uh, capital to solve uh, societal issues and to um, support not just regenerating nature but communities. Um, and it's it's about um, like holistic healing, environment, people. Um, and, and, you know, profits are not the end goal, but profits uh, support uh, progress into the future, right? Um, so it's more about circulation instead of, um, instead of gathering wealth and being greedy. Oh. <laughs> I was hoping, man, you had me set up. I thought you were going to say it's more about circulation than accumulation, but I like it either way. It ended up in a good spot. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we, we've now talked through a couple in you know situations where say, you know, these, some of these supply chains that end up with the berries or produce of some kind and being, you know, readily available to us in a store are, you know, suffused with middlemen who some of them might be providing value others might be just extracting and gatekeepers and what have you and so uh when we look at some of these two of these projects now we walked through the haiti one with the mangoes and now we're going to chat a little bit about siadri can you you know first of all even before you get into this i'm curious to know how did you maneuver like how did you find these projects right like where did they come to you from your existing ngo network like i'm very curious to know because when you have the current sort of web three refi space a lot of it um a lot of the folks building in it not a lot i'd say but a substantial amount are just it seems like it's subsumed with vibes more than substantial integration of multiple stakeholders into a real business problem and a real you know uh, impact endpoint right so can you tell us a little bit maybe in the context of siadri like how did this project even come to be how did you become involved I'm just um, I'm I'm a researcher and pretty much um, 
I'm the person that will look up a website or look up somebody on LinkedIn, but then I'll message them and call them. And then if I talk to them, like, don't be surprised if I show up in a week or a month. <laughs> so because I was following the whole produce supply chain uh, niche, um, I, I heard about Sayadri through one woman, um, Jane Thomason, who does a lot of tracking of sustainability and blockchain. I was like, oh, I got to go find find these guys. So I, I got an intro through her. But yeah, it's a pretty exciting use case of 20,000 farmers using using blockchain every day. Yeah. And there, so then the organization, this was in India, it's a uh, farmers, like, what is it? And what is an FPO, right? It's a farmer purchasing organization or something like that. What, what is it? Or producers organization, right? Um. I think it's producers. I can't remember the acronym to be honest, but yeah, it's a collective um, that was built on government grant funding. And when I was studying this too, you know, one of the the pieces that you had shared when we I started digging in, they mentioned that they wanted to streamline the supply chain for an FPO. Right, this is twenty thousand farmers in a in a producers network. So, um, can you tell us a little bit? You know, we covered this a little bit with Haiti, but I'd love to know. What does streamlining supply chain look like, right? And where does, and one, what is that? That seems to be the problem of streamlining, right? That's this problem space that the grant funding is meant to address. And then, you know, what did the solution end up looking like? Streamlining supply chain, I mean, it's more than just cutting out the middlemen. It's um, digitizing data. So like uh, the bulk of supply chains in the world are still on paper especially with shipping and Sadri farms ships vegetables to Europe. Um, so digitizing it uh, saves a lot of time and money. Um, but it's also, you know, a part of it is trade finance. Um, it's uh, having that um, instant settlement that funds are there on blockchain as well. Um, I'm sure a lot of people don't really follow trade finance, but Trade finance um, can have a lot of delays when people are waiting for banks to approve to say that the money's there, like, you know, because banks take their time because um, they're not on blockchain. Um, so yeah, it it's, it's, um, can expedite um, verification of funds. Um, and then the streamlining also happens with the geolocation. That's pretty exciting too, so knowing where the produce is actually from, like when that produce gets from the farm to the storefront, everything from Syadri has a QR code on every product and you can scan it with your phone and see the, a picture of the farmer uh, that worked on that nice. crop. And you can nice. see like how much fuel was used and how much the farmer was paid. Be uh, American, we have like a whole organic food movement, but you know, when you go to the store, oh, make sure you get organic. No one ever talks about how much the farmer was paid. That was never a thing. So I think this is a piece that everybody forgets. So that is pretty interesting, especially on the side, you know, this is a thing that in the natural asset space, that's kind of in both in the real world, I mean, not real world, you know, in the, in the, in the web, I guess you call it the web two world. It's not a term I subscribe to, but it's fine. Uh, sort of web two and web three distinction. Um, there is this drive in the natural asset world to say, 
how much did the small, how much did the landowner get, right? There's the landowner, the product developer, you know, if we're talking about carbon and all that. So it's really fascinating to hear that you can very easily pick up a piece of fruit and go, hey, how much did that person make, right? Actually, I have yeah. no idea you could do this. So if it's still a thing, yeah. I'd love to figure out how to interact with it. Yeah. Yeah, so, no, it's really cool. So I think then like, you know, this one of the things that you mentioned along, you know, these, thank you for unpacking, like what does streamlining supply chain mean, right? One of the things that caught my attention to dive in further as well is that you mentioned in the Haiti case that, you know, they're massively increasing the amount of revenue that goes to the farmer, the mango farmers. And then in this case, in reading about Sayadri, uh, they they drop numbers relative to farmers getting 25% of the final price of sold goods. And so they one of the endpoints they wanted to drive at was getting this up to 50%. So perhaps you could speak to a little bit of you know, what are the efficiencies under the hood? What drives this, you know, near doubling of achieving, you know, final price of sold goods going to farmers, right? What what did you observe and like what is that space that people can learn from? Well, it's just that, um, you know, farmers have to typically take out loans um, for just like their supplies, the seeds, the tools, uh, what happens if there's a drought, there's so many things that can go wrong. Um, so yeah, making sure that they get 50%, that's great, you know. Um, and in India, there are just a lot of issues right now. They're getting harder and harder to make money and for the farmers. And that's a part of the reason why they have a Sayadri as a collective. Like they've come together to, you know, have the selling power collectively where they, they pool their resources. It's just, it's a lot easier to, mm. to have this network of support than to be like this lone farmer trying to sell produce, right? So yeah, because I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Because Sayadri Farms has, you know, this um, came from government funding. Um, they were able to set up facilities where they can test the food. They, they actually test the food to make sure that it doesn't have um, any toxicities or any chemicals that the EU won't allow, for example. And then that data is also locked into blockchain. So a lot of a lot of smallholder farmers still to this day, I talked to somebody in Africa and like Uganda and he's like, yeah, well, you know, we send our vegetables to Europe and we hope that the vegetables will get through. But sometimes the EU won't let the vegetables in. Well, the EU's got strict standards. So because Sayadri is actually locking the data of the food and they, te they test the food in a lab and then lock wow. into blockchain. So that, that's another issue it's it's solving with like just food safety. Right. So this is basically just streamlining access to finance throughout the supply chain can end up getting them more revenue. That's pretty awesome. Um, yeah. And so the the one of the other things we've touched on, you know, if you're if you're able to scan, you know, a QR code and see where this thing came from, it can be you, the consumer, it can be you, the customs regulator, it could be a number of things. Um, mm -hmm. and so this ability to show ownership and provenance of, in, of a commodity, uh, with blockchain is very cool. But then I'll, I'm also curious if you have anything to share on this front and totally, totally fine. If you don't just, uh, something that came up is, um, in studying 
some of these standards around like fair trade and all the you know very standard owners for stuff like this right um the achievements of fair trade in the past 20 years they haven't been as you know it's been a lot there have been some for sure it's not like all a failure but um one of the things that's pointed out in some of the academic analyses of it are that the uh the the governance through the supply chain from producers to wholesalers to you know the retailers at the end um is somewhat broken and one of the solutions that people have pointed to is that there needs to be cooperative governance up and down the supply chain there needs to be the ability for producers to basically say um you know actually have more agency and choice in who they transact with and so i'm curious to know from what you've seen in your experience uh not just on the economic side right because we've really focused on hey oh they're going to get more revenue is there anything you've seen in the space that opens up new possibilities for the stakeholders to sort of transact and govern from below to sort of have a bit more agency in the supply chain the stakeholders being the farmers yes yes definitely well, um, I mean, it's just, there's, I think the most important piece is just knowing, having that uh, comfort that they will know how much uh, profits they have going all the way to the front. I remember hearing in Afghanistan how people used to put the price of produce that go from the farmer to the market and then back and the road in between which is like long mountainous could be like an eight hour trip they would just write the prices of things on a cell phone and then pass the cell phone to somebody so they could look at the phone and see the prices like that's dodgy <laughs> that's amazing uh yeah and and then like you know the other thing that's really great and i'm sorry if it's not completely answering your question but i mean yeah, really no problem I'm, um, it's kind of really sharing what just what I've seen. And yeah. um, the geotagging is really important because there's this uh, saffron, right? Real saffron connoisseurs, they prefer the Kashmiri saffron over the Iranian saffron. But yeah. the problem is that the Iranians will say that their saffron is from Kashmir. They'll brand it that way, but it's not. It's just like a lot of Egyptian cotton is not from Egypt. It's just a marketing trick. So right. with blockchain and these supply chains, you're also able to geotag and lock in where the product's actually from. So this is also exciting. Mm, got you. And I think um, yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense and shows really that it's not just... Um, it's not just a supply chain platform solution. It's solving problems up and down it. So that makes a lot of sense. The last thing I kind of wanted to turn to um, in your experience is you also have worked with a number of foundations and protocols in uh, in this re in the refi in the burgeoning refi space. And you know, one of them is Regen. We're not going to dig too deeply into that one because we've had Gregory Landway on the show. We've covered it extensively, but I would really like to dive into another one that you were chatting with me about, which is Reseed. So uh -huh. um, looking at this kind of to set a little bit of the context, um, especially, especially in the past two weeks, um, a lot of what has been happening in the carbon asset market basically has recently been shown to be either 
fraudulent or you know if not so if not outright fraudulent really just the science <laughs> the the estimations for additionality for permanence which i'm happy to get into we'll get into that later um you know we're just way off right and so trust in the, at least the voluntary side of carbon markets is very low and on the other side of this you know i went, went to cop last year um, in egypt and looking at some of the various talks stakeholders what was on the was on the minds of some of the you know, world's top allocated capital allocators, policymakers. Um, a lot of them are also talking about like how do we get um, how do we get landholders access to finance and how do we get them access to the carbon economy because this is a huge revenue stream for uh, landowners across the world and in places where uh, land registry, land title, land provenance isn't as strong. It's it becomes another challenge. But then you know there's a lot of folks now looking at the space now that Vera and South Pole and other big you know big players are uh, facing some major challenges. They're looking at this and saying, hey, regenerative farming is a key pillar of a lot of the UN's activities. A lot of endowments and you know like the uh, uh, Rothschild Foundation is really big in regenerative farming. Um, how do we help them access the carbon economy, right? Like it's really difficult to get a, you know, 50 square meter, 100 square meter plot access to selling carbon credits. So uh, that's when I kind of, you know, we both have come across Reseed. So I'm curious to know, maybe you can tell us a bit from your experience working with Reseed. How do they address this problem? Yeah, I love what Reseed does. And actually what happened was in working with all these farmers on blockchain, I was like, wow, there's all this data and then there's carbon. Like, how, how can we figure out like how much carbon these farmers have and, you know, create on-chain carbon credits? Like, it's just like, who's gonna buy these carbon credits from the farmers in India? And I was waiting. Uh, and then finally Reseed came along. I was like, oh, I've been waiting for you guys. And then I started working with them. It's, isn't it great? Isn't that great when that yeah. happens? And you're like, you have experience in something for like five to 10 years. And you're like, man, I really think someone needs to build X. And then you just come across X. One yeah. Day. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what happened. And so um, typically in the past, um, Vera, for example, will only take uh projects that have a certain amount of land and it's much larger than what any smallholder farmer has so that's a system that's for wealthy landowners pretty much um i can't remember the amount of acreage but it has to be significant i can't remember if it was like in the hundreds or not but regardless um you know reseed is giving this opportunity to smallholder farmers to um like plot their land and upload the data of like how big it is. And then um, using a combination of the most recent satellite technology from Google Labs and blockchain that um, the, the satellite's able to read the carbon in the land. And that technology, that satellite technology is supposed to be better than ever. It's been criticized in the past, but it's actually getting up to speed. And then that information is locked into the blockchain. And um, with Reseed, you know, this is all new and launching right now. They only have one use case out of Brazil, which I'm sure you know about. Um, but the the roadmap is to make sure that um, the carbon is measured every five to six days, I believe. Yeah. 
So and that you know the, the assets are still there in the ground. Exactly. And I think that's a really key thing. Like we, we just last week had a, um, had a, had a forestry scientist, um, uh, Margot Clivers on to talk about nature-based solutions and how they work and into the ins and outs of the voluntary and compliance markets and how scientists think about this. And this meant this notion you mentioned of, you know, measuring every five to six days is really important because the way the current carbon asset markets work in the voluntary markets is you have um, you know, monitoring, reporting, and verification technology, but a lot of it is not digital. It's just people, you know, coming in and surveying manually six to twelve months, and so it's not really a surprise that a lot of these projects end up being you know, branded as fraudulent or greenwashing or what have you. And so um, I'm curious to know if you happen to know, and if you don't, we can move on, no problem. But um, you know, on this sort of uh constantly updating of credits like how how is the reseed team and you're involved with them how are they thinking about this because is it as simple as the trees are still there or is it uh something more like um you know something a little more substantial in terms of like they can potentially get uh i've seen tree diameter right as kind of a proxy for this and saying like in addition the tree is there but we're able to measure its diameter and say that it has probably trapped X uh, amount of carbon. Uh, soil soil from satellite, I know there are people working on this. It's a tougher problem, but I'm curious to know if you have anything else on that front from your experience with them. Well, they're doing a combination of traditional methods with the satellite technology. So they are taking ground measurements too. And um, the creator of the methodology, um, has been doing this for decades. Um, he was the first carbon consultant to put an indigenous tribe in Brazil onto the Red Plus system, like I think back in the 90s. So very cool. Um, yeah, so it's a combination of old school versus new technology. And then um, and I will oh, say, sorry, sorry, I will no. say, I can't say who, but someone who advises the British royal family. Uh, looked at the reseed methodology and kicked the tires on it, and he's very well respected. And he'll tell you if something doesn't work. He gave it a thumbs up, complete thumbs up. He said, "Yeah, this is this is real." So I was I was happy to get that feedback. <laughs> and that's actually an interesting point to drill in on because, you know, for the folks who may not have heard the last episode where we dug into methodologies and how they're developed, um, most of the market trust in in this space where you know people are building ownership around natural assets is uh it's really dictated by the by the big registries right by Vera gold standard and by the big project developers and so when they've kind of been shown to some extent to you know uh you know the old emperor is not wearing clothes bit um you know it opens up an opportunity for other folks who are working here to bring some epistemic integrity to the space, right? Or at least not to bring it, but to recover it, right? Um, and so I'm I'm interested when you mentioned methodologies too, like uh, do you see, not just Reseed, just in your opinion, do you see this as an opportunity for uh, Web3 protocols, networks to aggregate, to, to aggregate scientific communities around them and begin to build their own in, uh, methodologies and issue their own credits? Or do you see them going in the direction of cooperating and working alongside the bigger registries? Or do you see it somewhere in the middle? 
Mm. Well, there have been some changes over the past couple of weeks um, that I see Definitely. Um, in, in the industry, uh, along with the traditional industry and, and what's on the horizon at Web3. But I think Vera and Gold Standard will have to adopt. And I, I know they are taking some measures. Um, it's my understanding that um, Gold Standard is actually taking more measures than Vera. Um, but uh, regardless, um, I see a big game changer in Web3 on the horizon with a very significant uh, blockchain platform that has a lot of power uh, that will be creating its own registry that uh, hasn't, no one really knows about it yet. <laughs> That's all I can say. But oh, you're I not going to share, you're going to drop the alpha on the podcast? <laughs> um it's it's uh it surprised me when i heard this a couple of weeks ago from a, a trusted source but i was like oh wow that is nice. super exciting um i'm also aware that uh the big tech players like the amazons and googles of the world are working on their own registries so i, I think uh black uh Varen gold standard will remain but they're not going to be the only players and, and those yeah they they have a limited number of days well, I would say a year or two. Um, and uh, that's exciting for me. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I believe, I don't know if I'm making this up. We will check it in the show notes. But uh, I believe Vera's revenue was profit actually was 10 million or 11 million last year. And so like the growth in that, like the employees, like when two years ago when I was talking about Vera, I was like, how do we expect this little 23 person nonprofit to do this job? And now it's like, I think they're at 85 employees or something. They've staffed up quite a bit, but um, it's not necessarily a staffing thing. It's a technology and science issue, right? And so, like you said, everyone's, everyone's really waking up and paying attention to this. Amazon launched a methodology with Vera um, on Vera um salesforce has a carbon uh as a carbon trading platform for the bcm they're aggregating you know project developers uh brokers and uh corporate purchasers so everything there's there everyone sees the opportunity here for sure they see a trillion dollar economy being built here and they're trying to they're trying to jump in for sure and i don't see this i just don't from my personal opinion i just don't see like 70% of market shares in Vera's hands, 21% of share market shares in gold standards hands. I just don't see that continuing given the immense sort of, um, you know, sort of shelling point being built around here. It's just arrogating capital attention. So, um, yeah. So I think Aaron, this has been great to kind of lead this John through your past and see how you got here. It makes, it, it's funny how stories end up while they're happening, they don't make a lot of sense, but then you end <laughs> up and you look back, you're like, Oh, actually uh, it kind of all makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, really appreciate your time. Where can folks uh, follow your work online and stay in touch with you? Uh, yeah, just follow me on LinkedIn and um, I'm fairly approachable. I make time, especially when people are trying to figure out, uh, these bigger problems around carbon and blockchain. I mean, we have apparently a three to five year window to make a dent in the climate crisis or else we're really, right. really in trouble, right? So mm -hmm. anything I can do, even if it's just a phone call and point people in the right direction. Like I had this um, young startup out of Nairobi and they're um, turning their electric vehicle credits 
uh, into into carbon credits on blockchain. So um, awesome. always happy to, to take calls with people. Um, but yeah, find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank, thanks a lot for your time, Aaron. This has been great. All right. Thanks a bunch. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of The Ownership Economy. If you like what we're doing, please rate us and subscribe. It really helps. Also, two episodes that were mentioned in this week's podcast for folks interested in development economics, episode 13 with Dr. Sean Conway and episode 27 with Dr. Millen McKay. Episode 11 with the head of macro at the UN, Dr. Hamid Rashid, is also worth a listen. See you next week.